First book of the New Testament. Father, we do pray that you would just, uh, once again, just prepare our hearts to hear from you. And even as in this chapter we read the parable of the sower, how important it is to have a fertile heart to take the seed of the word that it may be planted there and take root there, that it may edify, encourage, instruct, but also produce fruit unto you. Lord, I pray that we would be teachable right now. We look forward to reading your written word. Help us make application. And Lord, may we go out of here just, again, marveling at your incredible love and grace for us. And so, Lord, we give you this time the study of the word of God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we entered into chapter 13, if you've been with us in our study on Sunday morning, of course, Jesus came out of the house. And it's interesting that there's some that suggest that when we read that term, that Jesus was in the house, that perhaps that was Peter's house. We don't know for sure. But he comes out of the house. He comes to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's probably in Capernaum. And the multitudes began to gather to him. The multitudes are still great. Jesus right now is at the height of his popularity because when we go into chapter 14 next week at the feeding of the 5,000, we know that the Gospels tell us that after that feeding that they were going to force him, take him by force to, to crown him as their Messiah. And Jesus would dismiss them. He begins to talk about going to the cross and, and suffering. And the crowds after that begin to diminish. But right now, they're gathering unto him to receive from him. So Jesus takes the opportunity. He gets into a boat. He rows out a little bit. And he uses the water to amplify his voice. And he's speaking to the multitudes. Verse 3, he speaks to them in parables. And as parables, as we know, are earthly stories. They are stories that they could understand para alongside of and alongside of that earthly story was a heavenly message or a spiritual truth and jesus tells seven parables in this chapter six of them are kingdom parables because he begins by saying that the kingdom of of heaven is like and then he tells the parable we saw the parable of the sower as he tells the first four parables in the chapter to the multitude and, and how important it is for us to understand that parable. These parables are, are very much of uh, an importance to us to understand spiritual truth, what is given to us in the scriptures. So that sower went out to sow seeds on different types of soil and they can understand that. They can understand a farmer going out and casting seeds on the ground and, and if it's good ground then a crop's going to come up just like we can picture that we can understand that being from an agricultural area here in Greeley with all the farms we see that every year but as he gave the spiritual meaning to it it's very important for us to consider it as the hard heart that the seed fell on and the enemy came and took away the seed which is the word of God and then the word of God falling upon the stony heart and all of a sudden as the trials come in life and persecution or difficulties because the root system is shallow uh, that that plant withered away. Uh, we know that uh, our spiritual life can wither away if we're not 
having the word of God being rooted deeply within our hearts. And then the, the soil that produced thorns. And, of course, as the plant grew, the thorns choked out uh, the, the plant. And it, it tells us of the importance that there is the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of life that can choke out the spiritual life. And I hope and pray that we would say, Lord, please give me a heart that is fertile. Because I want the word to be planted in my heart that it may produce fruit in my life. So that's how important these parables are. He would tell the parable of the mustard plant. And then he told them the parable of uh, the leaven that spreads throughout the meal. And then the parable of the wheats and the tares. He would then dismiss the multitudes, go back into the house. The disciples come to him and say, explain to us the parable of the wheat and the tares. He would then also tell them two other parables that we saw last week, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. And personally, for me, I love those two short parables because it reminds me how valuable I am to the Lord, how much he treasures me, how valuable I am to him. And I think that's something that that is worth always remembering and, and we need to consider, especially as we go into this new year. I don't know what the new year is going to hold for us. But all of us, we will face challenges and difficulties and trials in the new year to one degree or another. And when we go through those times, when we go through times of losses and, and hardship and pain and suffering, when we go through, you know, where we're being persecuted perhaps, where we feel isolated, one of the first things that we begin to think is, Lord, do you even care about me? Lord, do you love me? Does your love remain? Do you see me? Do you hear me? And, and that's something that I can begin to wrestle with. And the enemy comes along, who's the accuser of the brother, and he begins to whisper in your ear, God doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. You know, you're not valuable to him. And I want to remind you of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. And I hope this is an encouragement to you as we close the year, enter into a new year. But Paul was one that he was used to... to uh, difficulties and trials and persecution. And he writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or, or nakedness or sword? Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, who continues to love us. And as we are faced with those trials and we don't know why they can't come or the losses or the difficulties in our life, that we can fall back on what we can't understand, and it's this, that, Lord, your love remains. That you set your love on me before the world was even made, and you continue to love me, and none of those things are going to separate me from your love for me. And he goes on and he explains, as you read the rest of the chapter, that his love for you is immeasurable, it is unsearchable, it is unconditional. If you ever doubt the love of God for you, look to the cross. Where Jesus proved his love for you. And he hung on that cross because he loves you. And that's the message that he wants to give to you on this last Sunday of 2020. And as he took that cross and walked down the Via Della Rosa to that place of execution, he was motivated by his love for you. And he continues to love you. So as we go through those times, remember that you are valuable to him.
that you are precious to him. You're a treasure to him. And let's pick up now the last parable as we read in the chapter here, um, beginning, as I said, in verse 47, the parable of the dragnet. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus speaking, is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels and threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and verse 50, and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So in Jesus' day, fishermen in the Sea of Galilee, again, they could picture a fisherman. They would go out to fish. Now, there was two different kinds of nets that they would use. There was the one that a one man could use in the small fishing boats. Most of the fishing boats were fairly small. Matter of fact, you can go to Israel today and up at the Sea of Galilee, they got this museum where they preserved this boat that was dated 2,000 years ago. It's, it's not large, a, a fishing boat, fairly small. And the one man could cast out his net. When we go to Israel, sometimes when we take that boat out on the Sea of Galilee, they'll do a demonstration for us. So we usually have one of the kids kind of cast out the net. And, and it, you know, it takes practice and things like that. But we get a good idea of what it was like back in those times. There was a second kind of net. There was the drag net spoken here in this parable which would include a couple of boats and a large net between the boats. And then a team of men would uh, maneuver the nets. And they would drag it to the shore, and they would uh, have different kinds of fish. They would keep the fish that were desirable, any undesirable fish. Uh, they would toss any trash, anything like, like that. And again, the people could relate to the story being told. And Jesus says, so it shall be at the end of the age. The wicked will be cast into the furnace of fire. Uh, there's going to be the separation of believers and, and non-believers at the end of the age. And it will be like the separation of the wheat and the tares that we've talked about. And we're going to go home and be with the Lord. And the wheat and the tares, he said, that the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's a promise for you and for me. There is going to be a final harvest. There's going to be a final catch. It reminds me of what we read a few months ago when we were in chapter 9. Remember Jesus looked out at the multitudes, and it says he was moved with compassion. That was, means that he was moved deep within his heart and his soul as he looked out upon the multitudes, and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, scattered. And then he turned to his disciples and he said that the harvest is plentiful. Pray for laborers to go out into the harvest. There's a harvest that is out there, folks. Jesus didn't say that the harvest may be plentiful. He said it is plentiful. And I hope and I pray that we would say, Lord, how is it that you want to use me in these days in which we are in? Because I believe that we are close uh, to the return of the Lord, that he can come for us at any time. We don't know the day or the hour. But we are in very unique times and that there is going to be a harvest. There's going to be a catch. And to know that Jesus would speak about there's going to be a separation. I love to talk about the gospel, our eternal destiny that we have as believers. It's so glorious, isn't it? We're all going to be together. We're going to be in heaven together with Jesus for all eternity. But there is outer darkness. There is the lake of fire that the Bible speaks about.
And one of the things that's popular in culture today is people believe that, well, you know, if there's a God, we're, we're all going to end up in bliss together. We're going to end up in heaven together. And even some churches that are progressive churches, they teach that. Just love one another. We're all, going, we're all children of God. And there are people that you know personally that they think that they're going to be able to stand before God in their own righteousness, that they're going to be okay. They don't understand the gospel message that Jesus came to die for sinners, which is all of us. And the great white throne judgment is very real, spoken of of Revelation chapter 20. The unrighteous dead are going to be resurrected and what is called the second resurrection. They will stand before the great white throne judgment and they will be judged for their works. You don't want to be judged for your works, for salvation. Because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's an opportunity for us to give them the good news. You see, there's bad news. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness of sin. But he came and died for you because of his love for you. You know, one of the messages that I remember giving my dad, that, Dad, you're a good man, but you're not good enough. And you need Jesus. And he would come to Christ. And I'm so grateful for that. And we can give that truth to others. But there are those even in the church that are saying, well, hell isn't for eternity. It's not real. Annihilation. All kinds of false teaching that goes on. Listen, there's an eternal separation from God, the lake of fire, the outer darkness that is for all eternity. The Bible is very clear about it. And it's very sobering. So as we look at others, those that are linked to you in your life, may you have compassion And may we pray, Lord, give me the opportunity to share with them the good news that there is a living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So after Jesus gives these parables, that's the seventh and final parable, verse 51, he said to them, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes, Lord. I always wonder if they really did understand or just said, yes, Lord. And then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So in the Old Testament, Ezra, Ezra was a scribe. He would bring back about 2,000 Jews uh, to Jerusalem in the second return after the Babylonian captivity. If you're with us in our study that we just finished of Jeremiah, that we know that Jeremiah was ministering in Jerusalem during the time of the Babylonian captivity. There was three waves of deportation off to Babylon. And and just as there's three waves of deportation, after the 70 years of captivity, there was three waves of return. It was Zerubbabel, first of all, the civil leader, and Joshua, the high priest, that brought about just under 50,000 people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And later on, here comes Ezra. And then after that, it would be Nehemiah who would come back to rebuild the walls and the streets of Jerusalem. But Ezra, he recorded the scriptures, but he also taught the truth of the scriptures. And the scribes were seekers and teachers of truth. And I think that what Jesus is saying here is very important and worth considering and pondering for you and for me. You see, he says that we should be like a scribe or a householder that brings out of his master's treasures things new and old. Paul, when he was writing to the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards 
that one be found faithful. So a steward was uh, a manager of the household of his master. He knew where the goods were. He knew how to retrieve them. Uh, he knew when to get them, when the master wanted him to. He was that servant. He was a steward. And you and I, as servants of God, we are to be stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, as we read about this, we know that a classic illustration of a steward is Joseph in Genesis chapter 39, right? Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers to Egypt. He ends up in Potiphar's house. And it says that Joseph was the overseer or the steward in Potiphar's house. And all in the house was under the care of Joseph. The steward was not to take advantage of the master. He was not to rip the master off. He was not to steal from him. He was not to be harsh. He was not to do it for his own benefits and his own gains. He was to be faithful to the master. And a good steward would be one he knew where the goods were when the master needed it. Matter of fact, the master could just kind of look at him and he could anticipate, he could tell that the master needs something. That was a good steward. You and I are to be faithful to God and to where he desires to use us to pull out the mysteries of God, the scriptures to be able to give to others. Sometimes people ask me in my years of pastoring here, why is it that you go through the scriptures book by book, chapter by chapter, line upon line, verse you know, by verse? Why do you go through those Old Testament books? Why do you go through all the scriptures? And we've done that. We've gone through all 66 books of the Bible. Matter of fact, it won't be long that we will be able to say that we've done it for the second time by God's grace. And I'm committed to that because it was Paul that would write to Timothy that all Scripture is profitable. He did not say that some of it is or most of it is only, or only parts of it is profitable. But all Scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable. God breathed, put to the page for you and for me. And as we study God's word, even as Paul told the Ephesian elders, I did not shun to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. That was all the Old Testament. That you and I are able to, as we continue knowing the word, it's more than just a spiritual exercise, but it's to know him, to be instructed, to be edified, to be built up, to be established in truth, and to be able to be a steward, to pull out the treasures old and new, to be able to give to others, to be able to share with others as the master desires to use us in that way. People say, why, you go through the book of Leviticus? I've even had other pastors that just kind of you know, under their breath or you know, say, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to go through Leviticus? I can understand Genesis and Exodus up to the parting of the Red Sea, but Leviticus, it's irrelevant. I've been told that. It doesn't mean anything. We're not under the law. Well, as I think about it, here is a truth given to us in the New Testament that Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that you and I, that we are a royal priesthood. We're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. When you go to the book of Leviticus, the theme of the book of Leviticus is to show the priests how to serve and to worship and obey a holy God. I know that we're not under the law, but we don't look to the law. We don't emphasize the law. We emphasize Jesus. And I want to know how it is that I can worship and serve and obey a holy God. And there's wonderful treasures that are in that book. And as you begin to study the scriptures, you start connecting 
the dots. You start, you know, pulling things together, both old and new, to be able to minister to others. There's all kinds of treasures that you'll find. All kinds of illustrations that are given. Truth and precepts and principles that you see as you go through the New and the Old Testament. To understand the New Testament better, you need to understand the Old Testament. What the prophets of old had to say, the stories that are there for our admonition. There's so much to learn from. And we're not to dismiss it or ignore it. As we see that, for example, that as it was last week, in the parable of the hidden treasure, that it was the man who bought the field to take the treasure out. And as I think about that, I can't help but think about the book of Ruth. You see, the book of Ruth is more than a beautiful love story that's recorded in the Old Testament, but it shows us how Boaz, who was the kinsman redeemer in that story, that he was able to redeem or purchase the field from the hand of Naomi, not just to get another field. He did it to get a bride. Boaz was in love with Ruth. He didn't purchase the field, redeem the field to have more crops. He wanted Ruth. He wanted a bride. And the Lord loved you so much that he redeemed the world, not so he could just have another planet. There's billions of planets that are out there. But he wanted you, the bride of Christ. I think about the book of Ruth and how it was, you know, um, Boaz that said to Ruth, don't glean in anybody else's field, glean in my field. And how it reminds me of truth that is given to us in Scripture. I don't want to glean in the field of the world. I don't want to glean in the field of religiousness or the law, but I want to glean in the field of his grace and his love and his provision for us. There's so many treasures that are there for you and for me. You know, one of the popular things that was in the church a few years back um, was that they would show a clip of a movie, a Hollywood movie, like Braveheart, and, you know, everybody would watch the clip and then base a sermon around that. And I was never into that. As a matter of fact, um, I had the conviction not to do that. Why should I show the world's videos when I got the stories here in God's Word to give to you? Wonderful stories. I remember that it was earlier in the month. I had my devotion, and I was reading in Philippians, Paul's in jail, and he doesn't know what's going to happen in his first imprisonment. And he writes in chapter 4 of Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Well, it was a few days later that Luke, as he was, they were doing a high school worship night for us, and Luke was given a little devotion before that. And he went to Second Chronicles chapter 20. And he was talking about Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, how the Ammonites and the Moabites and many other peoples came against Jehoshaphat and, and the people of Judah. And, and he was very much afraid. And the prophet of God came to Jehoshaphat, who was a good king, a godly king, and said, Jehoshaphat, the battle's not yours, but it's the Lord's. So what battle are you in? As you close 2020. The battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. And then the instruction was given. You send out your worshipers on the front lines. It wasn't the spearmen. It wasn't the horsemen. It wasn't the, you know, mighty men, uh, of, you know, that could fight and had the spears and shields and all that. You send out the Levites. You send out the worshipers to go on the front lines and go before you. And they had victory. 
You want victory in your heart? Be a worshiper. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice because we have the Ammonites and the Moabites and all kinds of things that come against us, and it gets overwhelming. There are treasures that we can pull out both old and new for ourselves, but also to be able to minister to others. And God wants to use you in this new year to be able to give truth to others, to be able to, to bring comfort to them. Because there's a lot of voices that are out there, isn't there? We see more people that are upset, depressed, discouraged, feeling hopeless than ever before. And you have treasures to give to them. You have truth to give to them. And the word of God is a lie. We don't have to just give them our opinions. And I know we'll have those discussions where we will do that. We don't just tell them about what we see on social media. Give them the truth of God's word and the comfort of God's word. People need that. You have something to give. Be a steward to be able to pull out the goods when, when the master asks for you to do that, when he desires to use you in that way. We continue reading as we finish now. And now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty words? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? In verse 57, so they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus would leave the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. He would travel about 20 miles to Nazareth, which was up in the Galilee region. And, and of course, we saw and we read on Christmas Eve how Joseph and Mary, they would travel to Bethlehem where Jesus was born, the bread of life in, in the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. And they would be there for a short time and then have to flee to Egypt because of Herod the Great, wanting to kill Jesus upset because the, the Magi had come from the east looking for the new king of Israel. So after the death of Herod the Great, they would go back to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a little village up in the Sea of Galilee area um, in the Galilee region, northern part of Israel. And it was a little insignificant place. Matter of fact, what I find interesting is that Josephus, the Jewish historian, he names like over 200 villages in the Galilee region, but he does not name Nazareth. We also know that in John chapter 1, that Nathaniel, he's under the fig tree. And it is Philip that came to him and said, hey, come and see. We've, we found the one that Moses spoke of. We found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And what was his response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it was a little village, insignificant little place, where Jesus would there be raised by Joseph the carpenter and his mother Mary. And we also know that Mary and Joseph had children. They're named here. He had siblings. Uh, he had brothers that are named here, four of them, and then sisters, plural. So there are at least, you know, seven children in the house. There may have been even more. There are those who come along and try to dismiss that Joseph and Mary, that after the birth of Jesus, of course, Jesus being virgin born, the scripture's clear on that, that they had normal relations and they raised a family. 
And, of course, it goes against the perpetual, you know, the doctrine of perpetual virginity of Mary that the Catholic Church holds on to. I grew up with that. But Mary would have other children. He had brothers. He had sisters. The only thing, the thing that's unique is they grew up with a brother that never sinned, never made a mistake. It was always everybody else's fault, never Jesus, all right? Can you imagine that? Absolutely incredible. Now, we know that Jesus wasn't showing off. There's other references that you might read. People have asked me, well, I read this, you know, the Gospel of Thomas that's out there that says that Jesus would throw up rocks and they'd turn into birds and things. He wasn't showing off to his friends, you know. He wasn't performing all these miracles because we know that from Scripture, that John chapter 2 was the first miracle that Jesus performed. So he's probably raised in the carpenter shop. He had siblings. You recall that it was in chapter 12 that Mary brings his brothers, and I know technically half-brothers, and they come to see Jesus. And the reason probably is, is because that they were concerned for him. Mark chapter 3 tells us that his own were concerned for him, that he was losing his mind. Um, And that's a reference to at least those in Nazareth or his family. And a mom does what a mom's going to do. She gets her boys and says, we need to go see him because they're hearing about his ministry in the Galilee. Multitudes pressing in on him. He's offering forgiveness of sin. He is there, you know, performing miracles. The religious leaders are mounting opposition against him. We are going to go see him. Now, we don't know in that text if they actually got to talk to Jesus. What is interesting, the Bible also says concerning his brothers that they did not believe until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I find it intriguing that at the crucifixion of Jesus that we don't see any evidence that Jesus' family came asking for the body of Jesus. Crucified victims were not treated with respect. They were usually thrown in the garbage heap. God had a plan. It was all ordained that Joseph would take care of the body of Jesus along with Nicodemus and because Jesus was going to borrow Joseph's tomb. I say borrow because he only was there for three days. So it's amazing when you start seeing these. This is a real family here. Family was extremely important back in Israel. You didn't ask somebody what they did and where they're from. You asked them, what tribe are you from? You know, where did you come from? What's, what's your heritage? What's your family's name? Family is very important, I want to remind you. The family of God. It's important to him, and I pray it's important to you. That you would continue to come and to receive and to grow in those relationships. It takes time, and it takes a little bit of effort on all of our parts. Get involved in a small group. Get involved in, in... Pretty soon we're going to start having the men's breakfasts and the ladies' breakfasts and conferences once again that that we've had every year that we've been missing. But the family of God is extremely important, and we need to be together. But I want to make an application here. They did not, you know, believe. They said, this is Jesus, you know. He was a normal kid growing up. And, um, you know, and who is this one? And he didn't do many miracles because they did not believe. Make sure, first of all, your assessment of Jesus is real and it is right. But second of all, 
maybe the Lord might want to bring somebody into your life. We talk about that you are to be used of God to pull out the treasuries, the, the treasures both old and new to be able to minister to others. But listen, he might bring somebody in your life that you might be thinking, I know you. You can't minister to me. Don't look down on people like that. The Lord will use somebody to come and bring a word to you or encouragement to you, maybe even correction to you. And I know that when I first got into ministry, I thought, well, I'm the pastor. I'm the one that knows it, you know, and, and I'll, you know, minister to everybody else. But over time, as the Lord humbles you, you begin to realize you're not as smart as you think you are. And there are people that are there, you might think, well, there's nothing special about him or her. And the Lord reminds me, there was nothing special about you. And I've used you. Don't look down on people. Don't push them aside. Don't hold them out at arm's length, but allow people to minister to you God's word. Because the Lord wants to minister to you. Maybe he wants to, to work in a way where you say, man, that's amazing. That's even a miracle that this person would come and confirm and bring comfort or instruction or correction. Let's be open for that this year. They didn't receive from the Lord. They missed out. They had the Son of God right there in their midst that grew up in their village, and they did not believe, and he didn't do many miracles there. Don't dismiss what God wants to do in your life. Be open to it. Receive from others. Develop those relationships in the family of God. I believe that you're going to be blessed in so many ways as you continue to do that. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this word given to us as we finish the chapter and finish the year. I thank you that we can come into this place and be reminded of your incredible love for us and provision. Lord, continue to work in our lives because you want to and you will. Lord, that when we are facing the trials or the difficulties or the challenges, Lord, that when we're confronted with those things that we don't understand, we can fall back on the things we do understand. That we can be one in a place of strength and stability, comfort, as we come to you personally, when we're weary and heavy laden. And you promised that we will find rest. Father, I just pray that those who need comfort, that you would comfort. Those who need wisdom, that you bring wisdom. For those who are weak, that you bring strength. For those who need direction, that you would be a word behind them saying, this is the way, walk in it. Lord, that we would be ones continuing the scriptures that we may pull out the old and the new the treasures from the word of God to be able to minister to others. Lord, we know that your word is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. And in this dark world, we can give light. And in all the voices that, Lord, that we can give truth, the voice of truth. Lord, I just pray that we would be sensitive to your leading every single day. But I also want to pray if there's anyone here that you're in the sanctuary or out in a coffee shop or listening online or later on the radio, 
that you've never made a commitment to Christ, there's a reason why Jesus came, and that was to take care of the greatest need. Even as Joseph was told concerning the birth of Jesus, that he will save his people from their sins. The greatest need is to be forgiven of sin, and Jesus provided for that as he made atonement on the cross. And as he hung between heaven and earth, he was thinking about you. He loved you. And he loves you now. And he cried out three wonderful words, it is finished. He paid the price. He did the work. He was put into that tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, but he rose after three days. And he's alive. And he is your salvation. There is none other. You can't save yourself. A church can't save you. A Bible study won't save you. Trying to be good won't save you. Don't think that, that the Lord won't accept you as you turn to him truly, sincerely in your heart. That the Bible says repent. Quit going the direction you're going. And turn to him that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Humble yourself. He loves you. Come as you are. But confess that you need him and need forgiveness. And call upon him to sit upon the throne of your heart as Lord and Savior. Right, right now you can do that. This means anything to anyone. Today is the day of salvation. To, to say, Jesus, I come to you and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believed you died on Calvary's cross for me. You rose again your life speaking to me. Be my personal Lord and Savior. And in this new year, I want to walk with you and know you. I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. For all of us, Lord, may we look to you each and every day. Bless everyone here now as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. God is good, isn't he?